0: Hello, and welcome to the Frontier
1: Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services provider for emerging markets executives. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and data that help power their emerging markets business strategies. Approximately 95% of FSG's client base goes to market via an indirect channel in their emerging markets portfolios. Thus, we thought the focus of today's podcast should be on our latest research in FSG's growing channel management collection titled, Expecting Change, Anticipating Channel Transitions. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of FSG. Joining me today from FSG's headquarters in Washington, D.C., is Dan Cornfield, FSG's Strategic Research Director. As a quick reminder, this research and all of our content is available via our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. Please contact your FSG account manager if you have misplaced your login credentials. Dan, welcome, and thanks for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Rich. It's good to be here.
1: Let's jump right in. Uh, Your research focuses on channel transitions. Very briefly, in a sentence or two, could you describe the core thesis of your research?
0: Sure, I'd be glad to. Actually, before I give you my thesis, let me just clarify a few points for our listeners. When we talk about channel management, we mean the way in which companies get their goods to market especially in emerging markets, that is often through distributors. Um, And so when you hear the word indirect channel, that means going through distributors. Usually when we hear direct channel, that means having your own sales force. Okay, great. So today's topic is about channel transitions. These can be dramatic, such as switching to a direct sales force, or less dramatic, such as switching the distributors you use, or shifting the expectations you have for your current distributors. As for our thesis, we've concluded after many interviews with clients that while channel transitions can unlock a great deal of market opportunity, they also tend to get ugly quickly. In particular, exiting distribution relationships is very hard to do. Distributors don't like being left behind, and they often resort to lawsuits or to interactions with your customers on their way out that can damage your brand and your future ability to sell. But here's our biggest lesson. The pain involved in a transition can be greatly diminished, if you avoid surprising your distributor, and instead give them lead time to adjust to the transition you have in mind.
1: Let's dig a little bit deeper on that. Your analysis begins with an interesting case study of a leading luxury consumer brand that is looking to exit distributor agreements in two countries. And one went well, and one didn't go well. Why was that, and what can our clients learn from that experience?
0: Yeah, it was an interesting story. Um, The company in question had exclusive arrangements with a single distributor for coverage of an entire country, and the company wanted to get out of that exclusive part of this arrangement so they could instead work with multiple distributors. And this was the case in two different countries at the same time. In one case, in Mexico, this exclusive arrangement had been going on with a family company for 80 years. In the other case, in Brazil, the arrangement had lasted for over 15 years, so these were not easy relationships to alter. It turns out the case in Mexico went much more smoothly than the one in Brazil. There are three primary reasons for this. First, contract terms and timing. In the case that went more poorly, the exit was attempted several years before the contract was supposed to expire. In the other case, it was proposed beforehand and pressed at contract expiration. The attempt to break an existing contract in the first case led to a legal battle. As an aside, signing exclusive contracts is almost always a bad idea. Companies often enter exclusive contracts because they are told by their preferred market entry partner that this is what will enable the distributor to invest enough to serve them well. Usually, this is nonsense, and the company gets needlessly tied up. Unless you have been in the market for a long time, do not do it, and even then, you need to have a really good reason to enter an exclusive contract. The second reason that distinguished between the Mexico and the Brazil case was that in the Mexico case... The, uh, the company in question actually put their distributors on the defensive before broaching the topic of it's time for us to consider uh, re- altering the relationship. And this may sound like a bad thing, um, but actually in, in this case and in several other cases, it has turned out to be the best way to go. Um, in the case of Brazil, the, the company approached the, the distributor and said, we, can, we have a proposal for you. It's going to be a win-win. You're, you're going to love this. We're going to love this. And the company said, uh, the distributor said, we hate this. What are you doing? You're trying to to change our contract? Absolutely not. In the other case, in Mexico, what do I mean by putting them on the defensive? I mean, um, essentially, they started to say well before the contract was expiring, you're not performing according to our expectations. You're only selling up to a certain number. That number has plateaued year after year. If this continues to be the case, we're going to have no choice but to look at other arrangements.
1: Interesting. At the center of your, uh, of your research piece, you introduce a very interesting framework that an executive can use to define the best path and timing for determining when and how to make a channel transition. Could you describe the framework? I know it's uh, a much more uh, easily understood framework visually, but for our listeners, could you describe the framework and some of the key elements that it features?
0: Absolutely. So our framework lays out a channel maturity pathway in what we call both space and time. So space is about your product complexity, your customer geography, and the power dynamic between your firm and the distributors in your channel. We summarize these dynamics and call them your market space. Time is really about the maturity of your market presence. We can help you pinpoint your maturity stage on a four-stage spectrum, which, by the way, matches the maturity model that we generally work with when we discuss with our clients where are you right now in a certain market and how can we help. So these stages, I'm paraphr- paraphrasing them for for this purpose, but they are getting into the market, expanding your presence in the market, pressuring your distributors in the, in the case of the channel situation. And then the fourth position, which is when you're established in the marketplace, is really when you're either going to end up in a mature indirect position or switch to direct. And uh, here, here's what we've discovered about each of these four stages. When you're trying to get in, most companies start with distributors that have power in the relationship. Now, what do we mean by power? Whoever can exit the, the relationship more easily and with less pain has more power in the relationship.
1: How do you measure that?
0: Well, um, it can be measured uh, either just kind of back of the napkin by saying... Would it be easy or difficult to exit a distributor relationship? For example, for our clients in um, India, they usually say it is easy to exit relationships because they have many different partners. Those partners are used to uh, contracts coming and going, and so it's not a big deal. In Indonesia, on the other hand, um, we see a very different dynamic. So um, especially the big distributors that have power, have money, they fight back very hard. And so in that case, it tends to be harder to exit relationships. Um, but then you have to look at your specific situation. So h- what percentage of the distributor's overall revenue is from your products, for example? If it's a lot, then they're more dependent on you. If it's not very much, they're not very dependent on you and vice versa. Okay. So um, then we come to the expansion phase or stage two in, in your market maturity path. Uh, at this point, what a lot of companies do is experiment. They look at different market segments, they try different product types, slightly more simple products, more complex ones. And in this product process, they work with a variety of different distributors. So they expand beyond their original market entry partner and, and try a bunch of different partnerships. In the third phase, they start to care not just about growth per se, but about profitable growth. And this is a time for culling some of their adventures and really focusing on what they think are gonna be their long-term bets. And in the channel process, what this means is putting pressure on your distributors, really finding out which ones are going to be there for the long haul, which ones are responsive. Uh, If you have a fairly simple product, this usually means how efficient can they be on your behalf. If you have a more complex product, how much value add can they provide in the relationship with your end customers? And then finally, we get to the the fourth phase of your established mature phase in the market where you're really just defending market share for the most part. Um, At that point, um, some companies go indirect as I mentioned, some go direct, and the the distinguishing difference should be how the distributors responded in the third phase. If you found that you have some really solid partners to work with, it probably makes sense to establish yourself in the indirect space. If not, or if you say, you know what, we really think we can do better than these guys, and we've worked with them long enough to know the difference between whether the, they can be as efficient as we can or not. Uh, in that case, it may make sense to take your, your uh, sales direct and the answer here is not necessarily just one or the other. Um, some many companies choose to take some key accounts direct while keeping uh, some more generic accounts uh, indirect through distributors.
1: And is there a timetable uh, through the uh, that you can pinpoint the progression across this maturity spectrum, or it just varies company by company and country by country?
0: Well, it does. It really does vary company by company. Um, but one of the things that I've been finding in my research is that the timetable should actually probably be faster in some stages and slower in others than companies usually give credit for. Um, So most companies try to move pretty quickly from the market entry stage into the expansion stage. That's fine. Um, But then they just stay in the expansion stage, and they experiment a lot. They don't cull the various risks they've been taking, and they don't really put enough pressure on their distributors for for long enough to learn the lessons they need to learn while those distributors are under pressure. And then sometimes this can lead to jumping too quickly to a direct uh, transition, or sometimes it can mean they just get stuck in stage two and don't really progress to stage three or four.
1: Okay, let's come back to those pitfalls and lessons learned Mm -hmm. in a second. But I I wanted to highlight uh, a couple of weeks ago, we held an event in Rio and we had over 30 LATAM executives and you presented your research, the uh, kind of first pass at this research uh, and did some real-time polling. And I thought it was pretty interesting uh, and wanted you to share kind of what you found in terms of the channel results uh, using your framework, kind of where where across these 31 executives uh, their channel uh, their channel fell.
0: Yeah, great. That that uh, meeting in Rio was really excellent. And it was, it was a fine time to test some of our ideas because we talked to a lot of different companies. I thought you were going to say it was a fine time in Rio. But <laughs> <laughs> always, uh, That was true, too. Um, yeah, we 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 uh, strategically had the meeting on a Friday so that anybody who wanted to stay over on Saturday and enjoy the beach was was <laughs> able to do that. Um, but what we discovered uh, in the meeting, um, and we had some some live polling equipment, so we were really able to to on the spot take the pulse of our members in various regards. Was that um, when it comes to market space, what we've called market space, there were two common types out of. Um, out of 8 to 16 potential types depending on how complex you make the model um, the most common type was um, a concentrated geographic market so that's where, where are your customers found and a complex product and a position where the producer has the power the producer usually being our client in this case rather than the distributor um, the, the second most common type was a dispersed geographic market with a simple product and again where the producer has the power and there are very different takeaways or, or key challenges in each of these positions. When you have a concentrated uh, customer set but a complex product, you really need to drive the service quality that your distributors are providing. And when you have dispersed uh, a customer geography but a simple product, the real challenge that a lot of our customers then, or clients then face is how do we drive distributors to expand beyond their, their existing um, points of sale. Okay.
1: Uh, you highlighted five pitfalls that we've seen companies encounter in making or not planning for channel transitions. Could you walk us through a couple of these most common pitfalls?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I just mentioned one of them a moment ago, which is basically what we call getting stuck or complacent. And this was this was of the five pitfalls, the one that uh, the majority of our clients self-identified as, as being a concern to them. Um, Essentially what this means is that many of our clients and companies who are not our clients, but but that's the information we have access to, are waiting for the current arrangement to become really painful before they consider a transition. And waiting until the pain sets in is not necessarily going to optimize their timing for capturing when the market has shifted enough to where there's an opportunity that they should be grabbing. Um, A second pitfall is poor expectation setting. And this comes back to the theme of surprises that we discussed at the beginning of this conversation. Um, many of our clients like to hold their cards pretty close to their chest with distributors, but experience shows that pretty consistently that the costs of surprising your distributors far outweigh the cost of letting them know change is on the horizon. Coming back to one of our big themes, surprise distributors are much more likely to be deeply angry distributors. <laughs> and distributors can sabotage you on their way out, but as one client recently mentioned, they can also spread the word among other distributors to watch out for you. And the business world is often remarkably small in a given market, so reputation among potential partners is a pretty important concern. That's a huge, huge factor. From your research, how often are you finding our clients
1: uh, actually proactively assess their channel strategies?
0: Um, great question. We, we actually need to first make a distinction uh, for our listeners between reviewing individual distributors on their performance Uh, which most companies do either annually or quarterly, uh, versus reviewing their channel structure overall to see whether it is time for a transition. Which is the body of work on this piece of research. Right, which is exactly what we're talking about right now. Um, So when it comes to that latter kind of review, what, what kind of structure do I have? Is it the right structure moving forward? Is it meeting the needs of my customers? Am I capturing available opportunities by you know, let's say I have an indirect structure through three distributors, I could consider going to an indirect structure through 40 instead. This would be a big structural transition. So that kind of consideration, um, most companies don't have a formal process for. Uh, Majority of our clients assess their structure on an ad hoc basis. um, And others assess the structure whenever distributor contracts expire, or they say every two to three years. Um, But we asked this in the polling, and only about 14% of our clients assess their channel structure annually through through a formalized process.
1: That's not uh, totally surprising, since investing in a channel partner is a major commitment, and switching, uh, as we pointed out earlier, is painful and can be costly. Um, So I guess from my perspective, the question is, how often, in your view, should a client assess their channel strategies, and are there preferred methods of, of such assessment?
0: Yep, I I think you're right that companies uh, kind of inherently fear the transition process, but I think they also inherently fear adding a new discernment process to their annual agenda because then it becomes one more set of meetings and and they already have enough on their plate. So it feels strategic planning, contingency planning, budget setting, staffing plans, and so forth and so on. Um, But despite our our empathy with that, that set of feelings of being bogged down and overwhelmed, uh, we actually do recommend an annual review of, of channel structure, both because we believe the payoff on time is inv- invested is well worth it, uh, but also because we believe such a review can be conducted with far less investment than most executives think. The assumption is that there are two approaches to discovering whether it's time for a channel transition. Either I wait until it's obvious or I do a deep investigation. But actually, you can conduct a very shallow investigation and get 80% of the initial insight you need to determine whether a transition is on the horizon. Now, shallow sounds like a bad word, but as long as it is structured intelligently, doing this in a quick, shallow way can be the very best use of your time. The key is not to collect new information. Our contention is that all the information you really need to make this assessment is already likely to be present within your organization, and usually with just one or two people. Your channel managers or your head of commercial for a specific country. Since the information is already known, all you need to do is figure out how to organize it at a high level to allow you to draw some quick conclusions.
1: And I think uh, you you provide a tool uh, in or you hint at a tool in the research that you're developing for clients to be able to use. Is this tool essentially a tool that helps with that shallow? By the way, you you should uh, clearly not a marketing major with the term shallow, but for, (laughs) for for that shallow assessment.
0: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think I, I use the word shallow intentionally because it has a certain amount of shock value, right? And I think it's it's useful for people to stop and think, wait a second, am I allowing perfect to be the enemy of the good here, right? Maybe shallow is actually the way to go in certain cases. Maybe you are a marketing major. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, exactly. Um, Rich, we've been, been working on a tool because uh, we believe on the research team here that it's important not just to come up with interesting insights but to really help our our clients in a practical way to put into practice the things that we're describing Um, and so just saying hey guess what you can do this in in a good shallow way is not as helpful as showing them how that can be done so so we're developing this tool right now and the input is fairly simple first we ask what the current range of your channel needs is and and by needs we mean things like geographic reach sophistication of your customer service ability to extend customer financing Um, and and other uh, elements that are needed to effectively capture your market opportunity. And we ask about this on about 10 different dimensions, Um, but it's a quick zero to 10 scale that that you put down your response on. Then the second input is, how is that range of needs likely to change over the next two years? So for example, it may be that customers are becoming more demanding, demanding in the area of aftermarket service. And third, what is the range of these needs that your channel is currently set up to satisfy? So continuing the previous example, are your distributors capable of offering more aftermarket service? By taking a look at these combined inputs, the user can pretty quickly identify critical upcoming gaps. And those are the areas where the channel's capacity is going to be outgrown by market needs. The question then becomes, how do we address these gaps? And there are basically three options. You can either increase the expectations on your current distributors, you can switch distributors, or you can shift to a direct sales force and each of these requires a transition of, of its own kind. So the tool has now guided the user to identify one or more transitions that are likely to be needed in the next two years. Having that forward-looking visibility allows the company to begin both operational and relationship planning to test whether the transition is really the best option and to begin to signal to the distributors that they should prepare for the change if they aren't able to meet evolving market needs. So the biggest upside of this tool in sum is that it helps you avoid surprising your own team as well as your distributors, thereby ensuring that transitions occur smoothly when they do happen.
1: Okay, and we're bumping up against time, so let me just ask one last question. Given the importance uh, of this topic to our clients, again, uh, 94% of our clients sell somewhat through a channel, I, I know you're also working on a number of other pieces within the, the collection around optimizing channel management. Could you give us a kind of a 30-second a snapshot of, of those other parts of the collection?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, we, we actually have a pretty exciting array of, of current ways in which we support channel management and also some fresh material that's coming out uh, through the end of this year. Um, so first, we have support for the bread and butter issue of distributor performance management. This is to help answer the question, if your distributors are not meeting your expectations, what can you do differently to get better results with those same distributors? Um, we have a pretty gr- uh, great body of work in this area, including some top-notch thought leadership, a diagnostic that can help your team members prioritize which areas to improve. Um, and we recommend that any, any listeners who have not taken that diagnostic definitely reach out to us and ask about it because it can drive a, a pretty, um, pretty good conversation among your team members and has tended to be very useful. Um, secondly, we have the issue of managing channel transitions, which we've been discussing right now. Um, and along with the material that I've, I've just uh, outlined, we have a peer benchmarking survey, which is gonna help us build a, a unique uh, data set by country and industry, which is something that our clients uh, regularly ask us for and we're excited to be able to provide now, um, which assesses the channel dynamics and how costs and risks tend to be differently weighted in different markets when it comes to running an indirect or a direct model. So um, again, for listeners, if you have not yet taken this survey, please contact your account manager today uh, so that you can participate. And finally, coming out this December, we'll have further support on how to count the costs for and smoothly execute a transition. This will feature uh, two parts. One is another tool, um, and this will be a deep dive tool. So we talked about the shallow, now now we've got the deep. It's called a Transition Project Finance Worksheet, and so we're really trying to get an exhaustive look at what are the risks, what are the costs, and what are the cash flows over time if we take one approach or another, and then get that down to a net present value uh, that helps drive a decision. And then finally, we're going to complement that with a series of of helpful case studies, both horror stories and success stories, um, from companies on the front lines of channel transitions in emerging markets right now.
1: Great. That sounds uh, sounds interesting. And I, and I think we'll uh, dive deeper in each of those in uh, subsequent podcasts. Uh, so we're out of time now. Dan, thanks for the great insights. We look forward to uh, to speaking again about some of these other topics. As a reminder, you can access this report and all of FSG's content on our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. We wish you great outperformance in your emerging markets.